0: This project is imagined as a series of four podcast episodes revolving around the subject of reality and its creation. It reflects on different realities that could exist in the future, our potential to have an impact on it, the virtual and the real, the magical and the scientific, or pseudoscientific. The idea is to open up the subject of the prophetic potential of art, culture, writing, films, and everything we do as creators and how this might be helpful once acknowledged and embraced. The series aims to explore the position of seeing contemporary art, not only as a reflection on the state of the world and its perception, but also as something that is able to predict the future. Of course, how literally we, or you, take this statement is up for discussion. Hi.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: Oh, I'm okay. Um, I I was worried that we might have to postpone again because my neighbor started drilling. Oh but God. I, Yeah. I but mean I think it's, it's, I think
1: it's too fine. much. Too much. Last yeah. week was just like I was like, Are you kidding me? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. <what> <laughs> and and it's like here in in London, obviously everyone's still trapped in their apartments.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a similar situation here. So, I think everyone is just going crazy and renovating all of a sudden. I mean, they're reason. literally <laughs> building
1: a brick wall upstairs. <laughs> and then we we have um we have also uh the art foundry downstairs, but the mm. brick wall is just also like I feel like for weeks they've just been carrying the bricks up the stairs. One <laughs> it's like it's just kind of absurd at this stage anyway i'm glad someone's getting paid in this time
0: you're listening to projects are prophecies prophecies are projects where we talk about art and the future and how they influence one another my name is natalia paonic and i'm very happy to be talking to Cecile b evans today Cecile B. Evans is uh, a Belgian-American artist who lives uh, and works in London. Evans is known for her use of video installations, sculpture and performance, focusing on the value of emotion in contemporary society and its rebellion as it comes into contact with physical, ideological and technological structures. So, Cecile, I read this from Wikipedia. I hope you're fine with that.
1: Um, I think the only thing is uh, I use they, them
0: pronouns. All right. Well, I didn't know that. So um, I I just want to say before we start that your work was mostly what inspired me to think about this subject, uh, how future can be, or rather must be invented in a sense, and uh, so seeing your work and not just the videos, but also the installations and the way you think about them in a multifaceted way really got me thinking about how things can, uh, you know, how, how they come to be and how a thing of the mind can really manifest in many different ways and across different platforms and still be one thing, uh, which maybe brings us to a point of departure here. So your latest work, the one you're developing right now is going to have three stages, right? Yes. Um, And it's an adaptation of the uh, ballet Giselle as an ecofeminist thriller that proposes mutability and multiplicity as a strategy for survival. So I'm reading this from your description, basically. But could you tell me a bit about what led you to make this project, the, the adaptation of Giselle?
1: Of course. Um, I think the really the point of departure was, um, I was working on another three part series called Amos's World, um, which really very much became about two things. One was the dissonance between what we think something is or is going to be and then our actual experience of that. And like that in terms of like multitudes. Um, and what I realized researching that project was really, yeah, the, the infinite nature of the multitudes of reality and the possibility for different realities to exist all within this framework of what we call a world. Um, Mm -hmm. And the other thing really was, is then on the flip side of that, the impossibility of fitting into a singular vision. So I knew I really wanted my be about this idea of multiplicity and that as like a real strength, as opposed to maybe how it's been seen pejoratively in the past, right? So you have movements like Occupy or Black Lives Matter that have been heavily criticized um, Mm -hmm. because they've been seen as like too multiplicitous or like confusing or unclear, illegible. And um, I, in this moment, this is like maybe a year and a half, maybe even two years ago now, I went to go see the ballet Giselle, which originally took place in, um, which opened first in the industrial era. So like the mid 1800s, it was the first ballet that took place um, from the perspective of the peasant class um, and was about this young woman, Giselle Giselle. Who goes? Who lives with her mother um, and falls in love with this new guy who comes to town? Who's later revealed uh, to be lying to her and is actually somebody from the upper classes, a nobleman who is already engaged to be married. Um, Giselle has a heart attack; she dies <laughs> from a broken heart, um, and she wakes up in this afterlife with this group of undead entities. Um, so. I maybe willfully misunderstood what was happening at this stage in watching the ballet because I didn't buy the program that you're supposed to buy. (laughs) Um, And my understanding was that basically the whole second act takes place in the afterlife and is Giselle's having to negotiate this new reality with all of these entities and sort of like for them to figure out a community um, outside of the binary of, you know, this love story. Uh, I was totally wrong um, because at the end, this dude shows up at Giselle's grave. Um, <laughs> and the whole the whole way is like, the whole way along, one thing that is evident is that like this group of entities, they kill basically any man that crosses their path, which I also thought was like really brilliant, was like, this sort of no holds bar, kind of like, you are not going to interrupt our negotiation. But I was totally wrong. And in reality, uh, the story was intended to be about this group of undead brides who never got married. Um, and so we're stuck in a limbo. And basically, Giselle convinces them not to kill the man who betrayed her. And this like act of compassion releases them and they all go to heaven. And I was Mm -hmm. so pissed off. I was so angry (laughs) that this story had just become like so basic and, you know, had fallen back into the binary. I thought it was really violent that like, even when you die, you're trapped by, um, you know, this like male, female construct and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just thought, okay, this maybe this, like, I can, you know, this story is so old, it's in the pub- public realm, I can really be disloyal to it. Um, and I got really excited about uh, using it as an adaptation, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it absolutely, it does. I mean, after, um, especially after watching it or watching the first two stages um, as I did. I really felt the frustration that you had with this, um, with the binaries, and I think there's even a point where you have a conversation with the uh, screenwriter, right, where, where she's asking you, um, she's saying something like, "We're not doing binaries," and there is a moment where I can really feel the frustration that you have when you like you say something like, um, like trying to really find it um, right and wrong or like true and false. Yeah.
1: Yeah. With, and that, yeah. yeah, it was important. I think more and more cause I'm now working on stage three. Um, mm-hmm. I think more and more it's becoming important for um, the work to acknowledge the difficult process of adaptation, but also like the difficult process of problem solving or finding solutions. And that part of that is like holding ideas accountable and how difficult that is, especially when, um, and I think like that conversation is with Sophia Almeria, who helped, um, script doctor, uh, the second stage notations for an adaptation of Giselle. Mm-hmm. And, um, a lot of our conversations revolved around paradoxes, and that's something that has always been really important to me uh, in all of the works is like to acknowledge paradoxes for what they are and that they exist. And they're a part of what like, makes us able to acknowledge like nuance in life and uh, this idea of like um, that sometimes like, there are no conclusions to things. And that doesn't mean that you can't be victorious in your attempts towards progress, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I and I quite like that as a as a thought. Basically, it's more about opening some questions rather than having answers to them, um, which I think is uh, a good thing. So um, yeah. So also one one thing that I thought was really interesting when I was watching the the first stage, the uh, the screen test, was. Um, Even before I read the description and this part about mutability and multiplicity as a strategy, I thought about many things that kind of resonated with the life as it is today or as it's been in the past year. And I'm pretty sure that this wasn't, I mean, I don't don't know you're going to tell me, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't really intentional, but it kind of made me feel like I'm watching some sort of fictional piece about... A time in which, you know, there are these, um, in this case, bacteria, but also like it could be viruses. Um, and then people are moving away from cities and going to rural areas. And this is somehow, this. it really reminded me of the life that I have been living, actually. Um, so I just thought that this was kind of weird when I was watching it, how much it reminded me of uh, the pandemic situation. And then also... You know this thing about mutability and multiplicity as a strategy for survival. It does sound a bit like how a virus would behave. So, and also the part about spreading slowly in the beginning. I mean, I, I just I wanted to um, ask you if you ever reflected on that.
1: <clears throat>
0: yeah, in a nice I mean, way.
1: I had to very early on. Um, obviously, I'm not psychic, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and also, like, it needs to be said that anytime. You're an author is setting something in the future. And once you do that a certain number of times, inevitably certain things in our, in, you know, the present will catch up to something just coincidentally. Mm-hmm. Um, but also because all of these things are attached to like much larger themes that are constantly in orbit um, in our lifetime. Um, and the stories are about, you know, these things. So those connections are quite um, almost so stupid. They're easy to make. Mm. But um, uh, I had to confront this really early on because originally the work that a screen test was meant to be shown in Hong Kong in uh, late March. And this was before the exhibition had been cancelled and I was speaking to people on the ground thinking like, this is, is this inappropriate to show this right now? Because there's so much within the language of that work that starts to echo with people's experiences um, and like what was happening. Mm. Um, And uh, it was interesting. I mean, in the end, like the decision was made for me because the exhibition was was cancelled completely. Um, But the feeling that uh, I had, that people had, was like that it would actually provide a a sense of relief. Again, this was like in the beginning to have uh, experiences reflected. Um, But then the bacteria, the presence of the bacteria... Um, I mean, this is especially important still to me and something that, like, I've decided to continue with, even if it does have almost too easy a link to to viruses, is like, yes, on the one hand, it's important to acknowledge that diversity is a strong point and also uncertainty is like a very strong and powerful condition within our world. And also one that something like capitalism, which is completely human made. Um, is constantly trying and failing to combat or like to conquer um, Mm. to the detriment of like many people's lives. And on that note, it's, you know, this idea of the bacteria that becomes a part of the narrative is like a way of acknowledging these shifts of power. It's like there's only to a certain point that, you know, we can try to dominate something like nature before the power shifts back to it. Um, And I also liked acknowledging things outside of, you know, I've always been frustrated by the invention of uh, the Anthropocene Mm -hmm. because it it kind of replicates the thing that it's critiquing in a way. Like, so the Anthropocene is this acknowledgement that we've now reached a point where everything on this planet like relates more to humans than, you know, to things that are non-human but like that just reinforces that somehow. And I think it was important to me if I was going to tell this story about power and the shift of power and like, you know, um, and reality that like this aspect of nature would have to be, you know, an un, unexpected ally in in uh, rebellious forces. Mm-hmm. And
0: I, I think this is um, particularly important because it also kind of confronts two different Things which are normally, I mean, it doesn't confront them. It kind of brings them together, actually. So nature and technology are often portrayed as something that's kind of not really, you know, like from the same realm. Um, So I thought this was really great, but it's also something that occurs in uh, other works of yours, I think,
1: um, yeah, I mean this is something that like big technology companies have always tried to conceal, right? Is yeah. like where 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 things come from, <laughs> like where the baby is made. <laughs> like uh, you know, Silicon Valley is called Silicon Valley because it references the, you know, the materials that are needed to create these like large swathes of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Um, People are always talking about uh, Bitcoin as an antidote to, you know, an oppressive centralized system. But the reality is that Bitcoin requires coal um, uh, and is, like, very dependent on huge amounts of energy um, to produce, like, even the smallest amount of, like, you know, data mining or Bitcoin mining. Exactly. Um, These are, you know, I think it was like I always remember this anecdote of like Steve jobs, every time he would present a new project, uh, a product, he would say, boom, as though it was a magician, you know, he was like performing a magic trick. And that is kind of how, especially in the beginning, you know, 30 years ago or 20 years ago, how the internet has been presented. It's like, Oh, it's this sort of like alchemy and you don't need to worry about all the bits and the parts we've taken care of that for you. Just, you know, let it change your life. And um, and it will liberate you. And I think we're finally coming to the point where we're recognizing these interdependencies. Um, and like, yeah, that even that that even though, and I think it's important to say, like, these things are not the same. Like everything within a realm is different, right? And has difference. But that they that doesn't mean that they are not like interlinked or interdependent or constantly in communication or like negotiating within that same realm. Mm-hmm.
0: You mean uh, nature and technology, that's what you're referring to? or
1: Yeah, nature yeah. and technology or like, you know, the split between digital and analog or virtual and real, like, it's not to say that there's a total collapse of, of thresholds, you know, it's like, we can recognize the difference between, uh, you know, it's just different materialities that are all needing to be contended with in different ways.
0: If machines produce everything we need, the outcome will depend on how things are distributed. Everyone can end life of luxurious leisure if
1: the machine produced wealth is shared.
0: Who is that?
1: That's Stephen Hawking. He said that a long, long time ago. Who are you? I'm Robin. I'm in a bad copy of a very famous actor.
0: We're lovers. Not because of any sexual orientation, but because the system doesn't see us. We love freely. If machines produce everything we need, the outcome will depend on how things are distributed. Everyone can enjoy the life of luxurious leisure if the machine-produced wealth is shared. Um, I, I just wanna make a few comments on this. Um, so mm. now that we are talking about capitalism and how it affects uh, our lives and our future, So um, one thing is that I think it's really important to understand that technology on its own is actually uh, much less scary than it's being represented in, in, I don't know, like in fiction or or media or or, um, whatever. Um, And that actually the the problem is mostly capitalism, as we said, which kind of controls it and the system that, that we're living in. And so that was one thing. And the other, uh, I lost my track of thought now.
1: That's okay. (laughs) I mean, like the thing is, I feel like I'm always shouting on panels being like, capitalism is people, technology is people. (laughs) Like like, it's so easy to get mired and and distance yourself. Like, Like I'm embedded in capitalism. Like I, this year I've had to really confront like how embedded my work ethic is in capitalism. And like that Stephen Hawking quote, um, that's from What the Heart Wants. And it's these characters called the lovers, who are lovers mm-hmm. because they love freely, not because of any sexual orientation, uh, because the system doesn't recognize them as faces, like they're kind of off-grid. Um, and yeah, I was just really surprised by this quote because I was like, wow, I had no idea he was such a socialist. (laughs) Like, um, and, and he's really describing this potential, you know, the, the, how unnecessary work is actually, and Mm -hmm. how strange it is that it's not in countries like the U S or the UK, you don't have the right to live. It's called the right to work. Mm. and like work and life are so intrinsically linked as like values um yeah that's
0: very interesting i mean i i'm I'm sorry to interrupt you but i just i just remember that when i uh was studying in in london i um i also got my visa and basically it was really important to to me to be allowed to to work because with my visa as a student i could only work for 20 hours per week, which was of course important to me because I needed to kind of sustain, like, you know, to support myself while I was living in London. Um, but then they gave me a wrong, like wrong visa and I just got 10 hours, uh, per week. And I remember that this was like a very important thing to me. Um, and it Mm. kind of did define the way that I was, like a recognized by the system and be able to survive in London, basically.
1: Um, oh yeah. yeah, and your ability to be recognized as like a good, as the good kind of migrant or the good immigrant, you know, exactly. the one that works hard. Um, and I find that so strange because it's like you know when you're talking about things like universal basic income, it's just a way to acknowledge that everybody deserves to live mm-hmm. and to exist. And like I actually have a profound respect for people who don't want to work, you know, like it's not about being lazy necessarily. Mm. Um, I think it's just like, that's not how you want to contribute to society. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah.
0: And also there's and, a question of what, what work entails. I mean, what sort of work you we're yeah. talking about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And this like, yeah, just the intrinsic notion of like work and survival being, um, being like, uh, what's the word, mutually, you know, uh, de- like dependent, which is totally not true. And like the scenario that Stephen Hawking, you know, kind of proposes is one where it's like people's jobs are replaced by, um, by machines. So the work, the necessary work, you know, the dry cleaning or the whatever is is still being done, but, you know, that's no reason that those jobs you know, that livelihood has to be taken away from people because guess what else machines make money. <laughs> like you can, this is something I became obsessed with this year is like, you know, there's this quote from, I think it was like Teresa May's campaign or like she said something like there is no money tree. And I was like, no, there's no money tree, but there's like a money printing machine. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no kind of like imaginary stop for that. Like we made this shit up too guys. <laughs> like, so um, you know, it's like we don't, before it was, you know, work happened because it was like necessary for people to do these jobs to, to have a certain base level of like comfort that mm. we've all grown accustomed to. And, you know, when that becomes no longer necessary for a class of people, that doesn't mean that like other people can't have access to those comforts as well. Mm. Yeah, exactly. That's completely man made. And that's, and that's, you know, capitalism's survival is contingent on that that's like marxism 101 exactly
0: yeah i, I just remembered what i what, what the other thing was that i that i wanted to say um, it didn't have to do so much with the content of what he said but more just the fact that i was thinking about how um like getting to quotes like these is getting harder and harder by the day and just like you know when you like we're living in, in an age when there's so many things you can find online, especially, but also like, even if you're not looking for them. And so basically I was just super impressed by how well researched your works were. How do you, how do you validate your, how do you, I don't know, like confirm your sources or know that what you're reading and what you're finding out is actually true?
1: Well, this, this, um, this is like basically a filtering system uh, and like, a skill set of knowing uh, a honed skill set that I've worked really hard at. And also like I'm obsessive compulsive by nature, (laughs) which um, is like, yeah. So it's, it's sort of inevitable within the process for me, but um, this skill set of being able to, know where information is and to be able to access and process like multiple information sources sources and like make a deduction and like assess its value. I mean, that's something again, that like technology companies have tried really hard to keep us from. So the way that um, like Facebook or uh, you know, other social medias are built, they're built as these like perfect feedback loop and like addictive uh, you know, addictive networks. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not built to do the thing that they say they're going to do, which is like to give us access to like information or communication. They're built to keep us there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the way that like a slot machine does, like it triggers your, all these like like buttons, but also like the way that emotional information is like very contagiously organized in your timeline, right? So like the moment that timelines are, we're no longer chronological, but we're based on these like algorithmic groupings that were meant to stimulate an emotional response. Um, And that lights up the reward and pleasure center of your brain. (laughs) So like the same one, um, yeah, where addiction comes from. And that's not to say, you know, we're all addicted. It's just like, it's just not conducive to being able to use technologies for what they're really great for. And like the way that, you know, humanity could have evolved in the last 30 years and that we're beginning just beginning to see now, um, which is really exciting. Uh, yeah. is like people being able to like handle large amounts of information and start to make mm-hmm. value assessments that are, that are nuanced and like paradoxical and complex and also malleable and mutable. I mean, of course you also have like the opposite where there are people who are doubling down and like, you know, this like slippage between fact and fiction being very, you know, um, manipulative and dangerous. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's, I would say that's definitely a result of like, um, well for some people, like, uh, if we're going to be specific, like white supremacy and ignorance, but, um, you know, on the other hand, just like, honestly, that's a whole skill set that wasn't allowed to evolve, yeah. I mean, it, it seems that way. That's why I'm.
0: <laughs> that's why I'm basically asking you that. <laughs> like,
1: yeah. Yeah, and I've. I mean, uh, the only difference is I've had the privilege that like this is my job, mm-hmm. you know, and I've had the the time and the resources, and also like you know being able to understand again that like what we call IRL and like online these are just different ways to do the same thing. And like, I always have a very like pluralistic approach to research. So as much as I'm doing things online, I'm also picking up the phone and talking to people. I'm also taking trips and like visiting people, you know, like it was really important for me at some point, not just to research something like the future of humanities Institute in Cambridge, but like to actually meet with someone from there Mm -hmm. Um, and talk to them also about like, what was behind that kind of research, what the day-to-day of that is really like, like what are the, you know, roadblocks and the biases that are in that, you know, to really flesh out as like full and, you know, to the point of being meta situation. Because that's what life is like, right? Like anybody who has to make a difficult decision understands this. It's not just like a straight you know, yes or no, true or false thing. It's like more of a wait and see and explore.
0: Yeah, uh, another thing that I just want, wanted to mention, um, it, came, it came across this, you know, your, your let's say, ability to collect so many different pieces of information and to actually uh, confirm them. I I just thought about how you mentioned before that you're not psychic, but I, I feel like, uh, as you said, when you have, Access to like many different kinds of um, information. I guess you you really can sort of build these imaginative worlds, um, which in the end somehow result in something real or something that actually happens or like similar things happens in the future. So you kind of I I guess this skill set also helps you have, uh, a knack for predicting the future as, as you would say,
1: (laughs) um, because I I also have the benefit of working with a lot of people, right? So I think it's becomes very evident that I'm not doing this on my own. Mm -hmm. And the more, you know, the more people that are working on a project and the more people that are involved, and that includes, you know, like the, the way that I am able to make these like huge projects is because multiple institutions are involved. And each time I have to explain the project and that becomes like a conversation and that becomes my way of like litmus testing what is because future to some extent is like manifested, right? If enough people on a planet want something or don't want something, it is still relatively possible for that thing to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, so if I talk to like a huge amount of people at some, you know, that sort of like broadens, uh, the possibility that this is going to resound with like the audience also. Um, and sort of, like, makes a case for me to be able to, like, pursue it, which has mm-hmm. been really helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, uh, another thing that that you mentioned before, uh, I mean, just now, was actually the story of the two lovers um, from, that's from Hyperlinks, right? No, that's from, uh, from what, what the hard, hard ones. ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I I thought this was also really relevant. Um, I mean, one thing is that um, their faces are not recognizable. So I have listened to your um, the lecture that you gave in which you explained how this was actually based on someone's true story, right? So there was like a uh, I, I'm not sure what it was. Was it Facebook's um, face recognition? which didn't recognize, uh, someone or can you remind me?
1: Oh, it's, it's, it's all of them (laughs) like facial recognition because of the, you know, the bias, the inherent bias and that exists in the people making these technologies. Mm -hmm. Um, the way that they're programmed is like to recognize specific kinds of faces. I think the, the like earliest example that I saw that was like public is there's this YouTube clip of like, um, an HP computer, Mm -hmm. uh, which had this like facial recognition programmed installed for somebody's job, like in an office. And there was like this white woman who was pointing out like, you know, the camera follows me wherever I go. And then her black colleague, uh, gets on and, like, the camera stops and doesn't recognize anything. Yeah, exactly, yeah. We've been in these places for what feels like forever. Plenty of time to talk about stuff like existing.
0: Or not existing. I miss her. The third? Yeah, we were three. Where are we, anyway? Supposedly post-nuclear.
1: How did we get here?
0: Border hopping. We didn't have the right passport. They changed the laws again yesterday. We didn't make the cut, and the system didn't see us as faces. Maybe the ship is faulty. I don't think so. We have to wait for someone to leave before we can move.
1: It's, it's a constant problem. I mean, like, this is the thing also, is, like, technology will only progress as far as we do, and as long as we have systemic bias within our thinking and logic and, like, existence, then, like, technologies are going to as well. So, like, another example is, like, Google... Uh, Google image search results mm-hmm. um, like an early example of this but you can find this in so many different things even now is like a professional when you would search for professional hair or like professional women's hair mm-hmm. um, you would get a lot of blonde women with pin straight hair and when you would search unprofessional hair you would get a lot of people of color and also you know like Jewish women and like all of these things and also, you know, very with these keywords in the image descriptors, you know, so also that there was no kind of um inbuilt filtration system to make sure that the algorithm wasn't being racist or or you know, sexist.
0: Yeah. Wow, I, I mean I, I didn't know this, obviously, but also the the face recognition thing is sort of surprising to me. I mean, especially after, I don't know, like they added emojis, uh, right, of different colors and things like that. But this is still, I mean, there's still so many things that are just wrong, but I guess it's just a reflection of the society that we're living in.
1: Um, Yeah. yeah. And also like that we still really don't haven't come to terms with what something like identity means. So Mm. on the one hand, like identity, like identifying oneself is still a tool of survival for many people. Um, But ultimately, like one thing that interests me also with Giselle and, and across all the things is like the impossibility of a fully fixed identity. Mm -hmm. And it's like, even something like um, a gender transition is not a fixed thing, you know, it's not like you go from A to B, and then that's it, you never question who you are ever again. (laughs) Like, you need, you need to be able to like, go forwards, backwards, sideways, diagonally, and for this to be a constant kind of negotiation within yourself, because like, you know, it can't, like, that's how we evolve as a species, really. Like, and, and also there, there's nothing in biology that says that there are these, you know, your identity is this emoji. <laughs> like mm. there should be, you know, if they're going to do that, they should have a thousand emojis or yeah. I don't know, or we should work with something a bit more symbolic. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean,
0: there's so many topics here. <laughs> like, I don't know which one to pick basically. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. I The thing I was going to say is like, the reason also that I put all these layers of references in, sure, if you're watching it on a laptop through, you know, a private link, you can stop and look things up. Mm-hmm. But it's also like, and the the moving image artist, Tony Cokes, um, I went to a talk where he mentioned this and I thought it was a great way of describing it. Like all of these, like being... It's not about overwhelming someone. It's about creating a kind of white noise and getting someone used to the idea that there is information all around us. And it's like you have agency as a viewer and as an audience member to decide what you're going to focus on. Mm -hmm. And that's what leads you to like very personal and like ownership over discovery. And I think within something like an artwork, that's crucial. Like there's nothing more exciting than like you know you discovering something for the first time yourself rather than like being told something mm-hmm. and then having to like work backwards to figure out you know all the intricacies of that yeah that's very well put <laughs> um
0: another thing that just um crossed my mind now when you mentioned identity as well um, just to go back to to the lovers for a second, I really like the this idea of. I mean, of course, it was it was mentioned in one context, but then again, when the system doesn't see you, um, then it gives you some sort of new freedom, I would say. So, and I I think I kind of felt this in some of your other works as well. Like now at, at this point, I can't really remember another example of this but like this matter of visibility or invisibility i think it's uh it's kind of present in your work right and then i just thought like this idea of being invisible to a system do you think it can be a type of luxury or like something that's actually a good thing
1: well, it's another paradox, right? I mean, uh, Hito Steyerl has probably the most brilliant work about this. Um, I think it's called "How Not to Be Seen," uh, a didactic fucking approach or a fucking didactic. Uh, I can never remember the sub the subtitle. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's just you know, similarly to the lovers, or maybe even Giselle's community. This idea of like having the privilege and agency to like reject the system, or somehow like being left out of the system is being beneficial because you can create a more free way of life. But, um, yeah, I guess it was also important to me, though, to have characters who, A, benefited from being the system itself. So Hyper is the narrator in What the Heart Wants, and she is the system itself and has an inordinate amount of power Mm -hmm. um, and responsibility from that. But then also, like, the Invisible Woman in... uh, hyperlinks or it didn't happen is like the complete opposite side of that coin, which is like to not be seen and to be invisible means that you don't get to participate in, in some of the wonderful things of society. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's like, you know, there's always many facets to that aspect, but for sure it's like, I think something I'm always interested in discussing through these characters. hmm Yeah. I, I think for
0: me personally, that was one of the, most interesting topics. I mean, it is in general one of the most interesting topics because, um, you know, the older I get and the more I, um, I get connected to, I don't know, different systems. Um I really like in the end I just kind of wish that, you know, I could go and live in the forest or something like and <laughs> just like
1: <laughs> Or not or not have a body. Like this is why I always do the voice for the characters that don't have a body. Exactly. It's because like I don't know. I've I, I have this feeling, at least this has been my experience, like bodies are really frustrating. You know, they they can be very limiting. They can be anachronist to how you feel. They don't always do what you want them to. They get sick. They fail. Um, and like you know, th- that's why oftentimes characters like Agnes and the weather, while they do have certain weaknesses and like are still weak to some of the same things that like bodied characters or like visibly bodied characters are, um, they have a i wanted them to have like something that other other entities don't have you know mm-hmm. it's like and even asking this question like what's so great about a body <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah i mean i i do know what you mean but for me for example i I think I just love my body too much you
1: know, to, to kind of think <laughs> about it so, in that way. I love hearing that. <laughs> I love hearing that. That's so good. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's a complicated relationship we have to like our meat, our meat selves. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think it was important. And you have even characters like the time traveler in Amos's world who like, her top half is like a live action performer, and her bottom half is completely CGI rendered. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think I think more and more, I love to pursue characters that are this like hybridized, you know, or move move into and out of bodies in different ways. Have you watched the show
0: years and years? I think it's it's like from 2019. Yes. And what do you think about it? Did you like it?
1: Well, I mean, it's hard to say because like I watched the whole thing. So obviously something was appealing to Uh me. Um, I just found it super manipulative and in a way like maybe even accidentally, it was like a piece of propaganda for England. Uh Um, You know, and I think it was like, also you mean how how they're kind of the the facilitators
0: of uh, refugees and all that in in that sense or
1: yeah just the the perspective that it was told from the things that they valued you know that it was told from the perspective of this you know like well-to-do middle-class family Mm -hmm. and like suffering was seen from that perspective when it's like oh hey like this is already happening to many people and and also like um so right before uh kind of the world shifted into the existence we have now, um, in the last year, I became very suspicious of what I call the thirst for the apocalypse mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, um, sort of this last frontier of, uh, and again, like l- intrinsically linked to, um, capitalism, like anything became, everything becomes marketable, even the end of the world over the end of, of, capitalism mm-hmm. and you know I first saw it when like my bank had this commercial that was basically the apocalypse like a bunch of people wake up in the middle of the night and like come out to the beach and there are these like dark horses running you know the the the, the haunted horse you know the apocalyptic horseman or whatever. And it's like, you have, you have a lesbian couple who's pregnant, you have like somebody who visibly has Down syndrome, you know, you have people of color, you, it's like all this sort of like, really um, aspirational way. And then, and then, you know, like I started to cry, and like uh, or like, you know, I started to like get emotional Uh, by it and then at the end the tagline is Lloyds by your side you know and it's like what you're gonna completely fuck us and cause this like apocalyptic rupture and then also say that the solution is to continue to work with you (laughs) like no this is insane and I started seeing it everywhere is like you know this uh, and I, I don't know if it's given driven by guilt you know because for the peop, the dominant culture lives, exists in a, in a real sense of comfort and like prosperity. And it's like, you started seeing articles like the New York Times saying things like a listicle, how to survive the apocalypse, how to shop the apocalypse. Like, yeah. you know, um, Arcade Fire came out with this album that was like, dance your way to the <laughs> apocalypse. And it's like this, this like s um of like content, you know, where it's like, you too can experience the horrors of the apocalypse, but through these beautiful, able-bodied people, like, you know, and it's like, you can taste suffering, but without any consequences or accountability. And I think that's like, what bothered me about years and years was that it was like, so like, like unrelenting and how, far it went into like everything was just how horrible like the same way that like I've stopped liking Charlie Brooker's work because everything is like there's no hope Mm -hmm. and actually the people that I know who are suffering the most from the conditions of this world they have to have hope exactly yeah. yeah because that's what allows you to continue going that's what gives you a sense of purpose that's what allows you to take care of people within your community and like the communities that you know are are taking the largest hit are usually the ones that come up with some of the most realistic solutions but they're also the ones that are the least heard and like and who are the first to sort of be quieted when that poses a threat to like the more comfortable option which is like content consumption and like you know the apocalypse at a distance exactly Um, yeah yeah and 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 that's, like, also why I'm really skeptical of dystopian narratives. So, like, a filmmaker like Ben Wheatley um, who made High Rise, which, like, was another bit of, you know, cinematic strains that, like, really frustrate me because it's, like, you know, to to not just fetishize or, glor- you know, glorify suffering, but to have it be told through this, like, beautiful perspective you know or this like inconsequential perspective when like people actually do live in trauma every single day like i just remember this writer um art critic and curator kathy noble who talked about real violence as like the feeling of no longer wanting to experience violence and i had this acting teacher who once taught me um because I studied performance and theater and like I had a scene where I had to cry. And he said, just think like the most heartbreaking thing is watching someone who doesn't want to cry, mm. you know? And it's like that, I find that resistance to pain and that resistance to suffering within a fiction or a narrative and the desire for hope to be kind of the most realistic thing. And I guess like, yeah, that's why I found years and years like ultimately unsatisfying. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. I mean, I I do have to say there were some scenes where I was really um uh, really touched and moved and like you said I actually cried. Um but then of course it does have like what you just said like all of those things. For example, like f- how they're using um the story of the Ukrainian refugee um without actually researching uh ukrainian names for example like i, I thought that was also yeah, a, a little yeah. bit of ignorance um but for example the scene with the refugees crossing the the sea or the canal i thought that was so heartbreaking because it actually does depict something that people live through um but then on the other hand as you said yeah
1: i think i had to turn that off like i had a really emotional reaction to that because i was like it became so clear to me, oh God, this is the substitute for me as an actual audience member actually doing anything. Because I get to live through, you know, a version or that experience playing out through fiction. And that's where it like maybe doesn't become so constructive. Like, sure, you know, there's, that's, that's why it's like, there's a limit to this thing of like, oh, well, it builds awareness. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's like, what, what is, what is that threshold? where awareness tips people over into action or where is it where it's like you've kind of itched that scratch and you have had you know a conversation with your friends about it and then like you all move on
0: but there is this I don't know if you remember this there is this meta moment at the beginning of the show where uh, one of the characters is um, picking up someone I think her name is Fran um, she becomes the lover of one of the characters in the end but basically she is saying that he asked her what, your, what her job was and then she said um, that she was a storyteller, and that people that uh, that it's an actual job, and that people need stories in order to, um, like I don't know, like contemplate their realities or something like that. And then I thought about I mean, this was to me basically um, sort of the meta narrative of the, the whole series. Um,
1: Oh, this is the meta narrative of like our existence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I grew up in the I grew up in the U.S. and it's become appallingly apparent that so much of life and culture in the U.S. is about controlling the narrative. Mm-hmm. And you start to see things like, um, and and again, this is like a marketing strategy, right? It's like the most middle ground, easiest to consume or understand soundbite is going to be the most successful. And you start to see these battles for symbols, like the storming of the Capitol where, you know, this um, white supremacist took Nancy Pelosi's podium and then Nancy Pelosi delivers this impeachment speech from that same podium. And it's like (laughs) people struggling, like the struggle is like, or the fight is to control the narrative and like to insert yourself as the dominant force within it. I'm not interested in that at all. Mm. Like, I think that's why I'm so passionate about these narratives that are totally out of control, because that's like, to me, much more rewarding for audiences but also like it means that it can be inclusive of the maximum amount of like it's it makes things more accessible and then it's also like you know my kind of like pithy minute way of like redistributing power within a working structure
0: well I, I really like the way uh, in which this went <laughs> because um, yeah like the the exhibition that I'm doing um, after these podcasts which I mentioned to you maybe while we were talking over the phone, is actually concerned with this a lot um, about how the meta narratives are being used, and um, well, basically for the for the exhibition that I'm doing, I'm kind of comparing uh, the coincidence of um, two events to happening on the same day. So one of them was the bombing of Belgrade in 1999, um, which was the NATO. Bombing, which later came known as the Kosovo War, and the other event which happens at the same time is the is the global global premiere of the Matrix, which uh, was happening in mm. and that was happening in the U.S. And uh, also one of the very interesting um, aspects here is that actually the leading, let's say, uh, member of of NATO at that time was. Um, the U.S. So, um, yeah, I thought I thought this was a very interesting overlap, and how you know people were watching this sort of um, apocalypse on screen. Or, I mean, The Matrix is not really about the. I mean, it is about the apocalypse, but there's so many different layers.
1: Well, the matrix actually is like an accurate portrayal of the apocalypse in the original intention of the like biblical Mm -hmm. word, because it was meant it wasn't meant to be the total end of existence. It's meant to be a rupture in which like the conditions of life are irrevocably changed. So it's actually like a really great great thing from a curatorial perspective. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Thanks. No, I I was really, I mean, you know, of course, there's many things that kind of led to this. Um, But I was really fascinated when I when I found this out and when I kind of connected it, because also one of the I mean, this is very local, but still, um, I think The Matrix was one of the few films that we actually had on TV at the time, so that was that was mm. so crazy to me. <laughs> like, I mean, The yeah. Matrix is also such a popular, but also, such, in my opinion, I, I really like The Matrix. It's actually a very good film to me, um, even though, of course, it has its like you know good and bad sides. But um, I think it's just so good that many different people can appreciate the film and also you know like it's not too let's say um arty i mean it's, you know uh, it's actually like a, a pretty uh, understandable film in the end but it's also yeah. really important i would say for for the for the year for 1999 i thought it was very very relevant um
1: Absolutely. I just, it's funny. I just watched with my film, my online film club. Um, we just watched all, all of the major. Oh, really? Yeah, we just finished a couple of weeks ago. Um, so it's good timing. And then this, but I'm the idea of meta narratives. So we were talking about like, you know, a potential positive shift and, you know, out of the addiction cycle and like, Um, At the beginning of the pandemic, um, my physical circumstance um, and, you know, over the course of several months meant that, like, I really couldn't leave the house. And at some point I was in bed for a really long time time. Um, and I basically lived on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, That was like because... And I saw this as, like, the news was the narrative, right? This was the acceptable narrative. And then I would go to Twitter to figure out what was really happening, you know, to different groups of people and, like, how, how things, you know, the real information mm. behind it. And people really started to, ne- like, lean into misusing Twitter. So Twitter is all about these, like, very short statements. And people started speaking in, like, really long, un wieldy threads uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, you know like 50, 50 tweets deep which is not how Twitter is supposed yeah. to work and like and also people would interrupt the threads threads would kind of like lose their direction and like these aim these seemingly aimly aimless conversations to me were like really the most exciting examples of like community-led progress that I'd seen in a long time. And I started to write that into the script of notations. Like some of the characters speak in threads and it's also like things like statements that are made, like no cops, no jail, no linear fucking time. Uh Like that's a really opaque statement, but it, you know, it was one that was like a picture of graffiti that was, uh, you know, tweeted. And I just thought this, this is a result of these conversations, you know, these like, these like incredibly almost illegible statements, um and working on the third stage i think i've come to the conclusion that it has to be a meta narrative so <laughs> in the end it's not just going to, i'm not just going to like tell the story of like how i've adapted you know giselle um to be set 500 years in the future it's ultimately going to be um told through this perspective of the director Uh, who is a rubber plant, who lives with their partner, who's a camera, and their baby, um, as the rubber plant struggles to adapt Giselle, the industrial-era ballet, as an eco-feminist thriller um, because their context for the modern world is collapsing, Um, and I just, I also thought like, this is really the only way also to talk about some of the issues that I think the real world issues that I've encountered, you know, um, trying to make this work and like with, you know, my, my good work ethic of like continuing to work through the pandemic to make sure that everybody is paid. And, you know, like I have some semblance of like, you know, hopefully a baseline stability coming out of this and that, you know, and productivity as like a muscle um, and having to confront that and also like, yeah, just the real things that, that have happened and, and the process of adaptation itself as a needing to, and maybe like um, sort of, I'm still working through this obviously, but like the ways in which I, uh, I fail at adapting. Mm-hmm you know and how hard how hard changes like it's one of the hardest things to do um but also one of the things that human beings as a species are most adept to being able to do Hmm. um i said i but i really meant the (laughs) (laughs) rubber. wow great